This is Our American Stories, and today we bring you the story of a man whose name might not be familiar to you. His work, on the other hand, particularly his music, is recognizable around the world. Here's Jesse Edwards with the story. The name Richard D. Trentledge may not roll off the tongues of most Americans, but generations can no doubt sing along to some of the catchy advertising jingles he wrote for companies like Oscar Mayer and McDonald's. Class attention! Forward march! Oh, I'd love to be an Oscar Mayer wiener. That is what I truly like to be. Because if I were an Oscar Mayer wiener, everyone would be in love with me. Mr. Trentledge, who wrote a number of jingles that have the mental stickiness of flypaper, passed away on September 21st in Libertyville, Illinois, at the age of 87. Among other memorable melodies and taglines he wrote, McDonald's, It's Your Kind of Place, and Wow, Sure Doesn't Taste Like Tomato Juice for V8, and Buckle Up for Safety, Buckle Up for a National Safety Council promotion for using seatbelts. The Oscar Mayer Wiener song had its beginnings in September of 1962 when Mr. Trentledge, who worked for some large advertising agencies, learned that Oscar Mayer, the food giant known for its deli meats, was sponsoring a contest for a wiener jingle. Oh, I'm glad I'm not an Oscar Mayer Wiener. That is what I never want to be. Because if I were an Oscar Mayer wiener, there would soon be nothing left of me. He heard about the contest the day before the deadline, however. At home, that night, he started to tap out ideas on a typewriter. Inspiration struck when he remembered one of his sons talking about a friend who was a, quote, dirt bike hot dog. I wish I could be a dirt bike hot dog, his son said, using a term for someone who is cool. That inspired Mr. Trentledge to type the first line of the jingle, which he completed within an hour. Oh, I wish I were an Oscar In 1963, becoming a signature tune for the company's advertising in 21 English-speaking countries until 2010, when it was retired. An animated television commercial featured children marching and singing the praises of Oscar Mayer. Oh, I love to be Oscar Mayer wieners are all meat, all good meat, rich and complete meat protein, mildly seasoned to bring out all the good meat flavor. Everyone would be in love with me. Mr. Trentledge, who lived in Fox River Grove, Illinois, was a songwriter and musician who played a banjo ukulele, a hybrid instrument that combined a banjo-like body with a ukulele neck. While Mr. Trentledge's success with Oscar Mayer was long-lasting, it hardly happened overnight. One of his sons, David, recorded the jingle in a small recording studio in the family's living room. Mr. Trentledge then delivered the recording to Oscar Mayer headquarters in Wisconsin, but it was a year before the jingle was selected as the winning entry. The company played the song before a series of focus groups. His song was the one that surfaced over and over as the favorite. When the song debuted on a Houston radio station in 1963, listeners, thinking it was a pop tune, requested that it be played repeatedly. Truly like to be. 
John H. Murphy II, a professor emeritus at the Stan Richards School of Advertising and Public Relations at the University of Texas in Austin, said the jingle was remarkable for its, quote, longevity and uncanny freshness, one of the greatest single accomplishments in advertising history. The song became a part of American culture, with airings on children's television shows like Captain Kangaroo, The Jetsons, and even on an episode of The Simpsons in the 1990s. Oh, I wish I were an Oscar Mayer wiener. That, that is what, what I truly like to be. Because if I were an Oscar Mayer wiener, everyone would be in love with me. Printledge continued to collect residuals on the jingle decades after it first aired. Such tunes generally have a shelf life of 8 to 13 weeks, partly because of the requirement of such payments. Oh, I wish I were an he was born December 27, 1928 in Chicago to Richard B. and Edna Trentledge. He discovered a passion for music early and began taking guitar lessons when he was 12. He began writing jingles as a senior in high school, according to his family. His first effort was on behalf of a fictional product, Modern Plastic Brooms. His idea was to create a sponsor for a high school talent show that sounded like a radio program with a jingle for opening and closing commercials. Fifty years after he was in high school, his classmates gathered at a reunion and sang his Modern Plastic Brooms jingle, a tribute to the staying power of his lyrics and melodies. Richard D. Trintlidge, an American story. I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job on that, Jesse. And by the way, when that song and that jingle appeared in Houston, this was Oscar Mayer rolling out from being a regional company to testing. And that jingle rang the bell at the cash register. Some people and some business historians think it may have made the difference in making this the national brand it was. And so... Go figure. We do the story of song here a lot. We talk about music a lot. And writing jingles can make the difference for a company. We all know the song. And I just loved hearing that that sort of British pop version. That was really pretty. (laughs) Herman's Hermit's version. Uh, This is Lee Habib. And Jesse, as always, does great work for us here on Our American Stories. And more after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's Classical Music Month. And so our own Alex Cortez is bringing us this American Dreamers story on a classical musician he recently read about in Amway co-founder Jay Van Andel's book, An Enterprising Life. Mistiflav Slava Rostropovich is his name. Let's take a listen. The Russian word for glory. Glory for his music and glory for his story. One of the great conductors. He always tells me, you know, not everything is important. Uh, if you put everything, it gives importance to the public, then they will slowly, uh, you know, be tired. And then, but sometimes you have to let them go and let them be in their thoughts and get them relaxed and then stress the material that you really want to stress. One of the great cellists. Julian Lloyd Webber said he's the greatest ever. Here's one of the other all-time greats, Yo-Yo Ma, reflecting on being a 15-year-old listening to a 1961 recording of Slava's. That recording just made my hair stand on end. I, I couldn't sleep that night. I think it was the combination of energy and to a, a player, a cellist, a fellow cellist, the impossibility of what he was doing on the instrument. Beyond physical ability, there was a kind of willpower that was so grand and it is overwhelming. You know, this, it's kind of a, a reality distortion. You enter into that, uh, his sound world, or you see him in person, and something happens, and you fall under the spell. Here's Slava on how he cast that spell. I first make fire in my heart, in my body, because before I make a beat, I imagine this sound before I make a beat. You know, he's a funny guy, Father, because he was, he was physically very awkward. And he himself used to say, you know, I real ugly guy. (laughs) 
But his hands were the most beautiful hands I've ever seen. They were long, they were wide, they were gorgeous. They were something that a painter might have, might have painted. Uh, and anything that had to do with his hands was gorgeous. A fellow Russian cellist said that these hands made the cello look and sound like a completely new instrument. Slava's innovations and technique in one lifetime by one man are equal to all of humanity's over several centuries. My mother uh, carried me for 10 months. I tell mother, you have extra months. Why you not make for me beautiful face? And mother tell me, my son, I was busy with make to you beautiful hands. When Slava was 21 years old, he dropped out of university. He wasn't failing, he wasn't parting too much, or pursuing some great business idea. He was pursuing freedom, artistic freedom, in a country without. The Soviet regime forced his teacher, Dmitry Shostakovich, to leave the Moscow Conservatory. His crime? Producing music too chaotic, too innovative, at least for their brand of socialist realism. Their official statement declared that Stolstakovich had anti-democratic tendencies alien to the Soviet people. So in protest and in solidarity, Slava left too. He was a nobody then, so it didn't catch the Soviets' attention but he soon would, as a professional cellist and later as a conductor. What he gives to us in his music is what he terms, he called himself a foot soldier in the service of music, and I think of him in that sense, it would be the foot soldier reporting on the triumphs and tragedies of the world. Just two years later, at the age of 23, the Soviets awarded him with their Stalin Prize for his mastery of the instrument. and would later receive their highest distinction in all of the land, being named the People's Artist of the Soviet Union. He was a public figure now, and this would be a problem. In this moment, government come back and just close my mouth and tell, no, please not express something new. Slava's first expression as a public figure wasn't vocal at all. It was musical. It was this composition, Czech composer Antonin Dvorak's cello concerto in B minor, and Slava decided to perform it in London. But not just on any day. On the same day, the Soviets invaded Czechoslovakia to put an end to their democratic reforms. An invasion of 200,000 troops and 2,000 tanks. 72 people would die. As for Slava, to make sure his audience knew exactly what he was doing. After his performance, he stood up and proudly hoisted the Czech composer's score as a message of solidarity. And he wasn't finished. As an encore, he played a solemn Bach piece that he said he'd like to offer to those who were mourning. 
Let's just say those Soviets weren't thrilled. And this was nothing compared to what Slava would do next. And when we come back, more of this great story. This is our American stories. And by the way, our music stories are all over our website, and that's at ouramericannetwork.org. And this is the power of music. Uh, In the end, it's to move people and move nations. And it has tremendous, and it has always had, tremendous political power as well. Again, it's why dictators always, always want to control the artists and the storytellers. It's because in the end, those are the people who move a nation. And we saw it in Hitler's, in Hitler's Third Reich, how he commissioned the great artist to celebrate himself and punished any artist who wouldn't put himself at the center of all the art and all the work. And if you can, one of our favorite stories was the Armando Valladares story. And if you recall, if you didn't hear it, and again, go to ouramericannetwork.org, Armando Valladares. He was a poet and dissident in Cuba. And he went to prison because he wouldn't essentially say that Fidel Castro was his God. He had a different God. And he simply wasn't going to renounce his faith. And he went into a prison camp and stayed there a very long time and wrote poetry in his own blood on the skin of an onion. And ultimately, and fairly recently, the Beckett Fund awarded him the Canterbury Medal and Prize. And that's always for religious freedom. And so very often the artist, the poet, the musician, and my goodness, I think some people would even call Martin Luther King an artist. I know Bono felt that way enough so to write his favorite song, about Martin Luther King in the name of love, pride. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. When we come back, more on the life of Slava Rostropovich. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We now return to our American Dreamers feature, our Mistislav Slava Rostropovich. When we left off, Slava received the Soviet Union's highest honor, the People's Artists of the Soviet Union, for his mastery of the cello, a distinction that became problematic because it gave him fame. Fame that put a spotlight on him and a spotlight on his fierce belief in artistic freedom in a country without it. Let's return to Alex's story to hear what Slava does next.
He penned an open letter to the state-run newspaper Pravda, directly attacking the state censorship of art. Explain to me, please, why in our literature and art so often people absolutely incompetent in this field have the final word? There's the burn, and then came the meat of his message. Every man must have the right, fearlessly, to think independently and express his opinion about what he knows, what he has personally thought about and experienced, and not merely express with slightly different variations the opinion which has been inculcated in him. Let's just say they didn't run that letter. And this was all before Slava found this partner in crime. Since his body is doomed to die, his task on earth evidently must be of a more spiritual nature. It cannot be unrestrained enjoyment of everyday life. Here's Slava on this troublemaker. He was one of the greatest Russian writers. Yeah. Second Tolstoy, second Dostoevsky. Yeah. His name? Alexander Solzhenitsyn. A friend who was even more controversial than he was. And a friend without a home. Solzhenitsyn had served eight years in a labor camp for privately criticizing Stalin and then was sent into exile for life. His fortunes turned around when the next Soviet leader, Nikita Khrushchev, exonerated him and even authorized his book exposing Stalin's prison labor system. One day in the life of Ivan Denisovich. The moment it hit the streets, it was gone in an instant. But then Khrushchev was removed, and along with it, any semblance of hope that Solzhenitsyn could publish future works. The Soviets declared him a non-person. And after they stole one of his manuscripts, he went into hiding. In 1970, Slava took him in, saying, He was my friend. He had no place to go. That same year, Solzhenitsyn was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature, but he could not personally receive it in Stockholm. He feared that he would not be let back into his home country. He was one of the only people willing to speak out, and speak out at the risk of his own life. In 1971, the KGB attempted to assassinate him with a biological agent, and they failed. And then in 1973 came his most famous work, a comprehensive look at the Russian prison system, the Gulag Archipelago, and it was the final straw. Solzhenitsyn banished from the Soviet Union. And Slava hosting Solzhenitsyn was the Soviet's last straw for him, too. Cancel my, my tour in the West in May 74. I go out from Russia alone, without my family. Why? Because Minister of Culture tell me I must go out. I will not utter one single lie in order to return, he said at the time. I would never see Russia in my friends again. The Soviets tried to make good on this. Four years later, they formally stripped Slava of his citizenship. He was wounded very deeply and stood up to it. 
Here Slava is, speaking through a translator. Both myself and all my family remain Soviet citizens. And I'd also like to say that I love very deeply and very sincerely my country and my people. For Maestro, I'm sure it must have been incredibly difficult as a human being to suffer and not to be able to return to his homeland. And I think that made his art only more richer. I was born anew, Slava said at the time. I found a great deal more in music than I did when I lived in the Soviet Union. I re-examined everything, and I could see everything more vividly. All the composers, even Beethoven, came to mean more to me. And in 1977, Slava found his new place in the world, a place whose language he didn't know, Washington, D.C., as a celebrated music director and conductor of the National Symphony Orchestra. Washington loves celebrity, loves fame, loves glamour, and my goodness, he had that. And I think both Washington and Slava loved the fact that this escapee from communism was going to head the orchestra in the capital of the United States. Before the break, I want to read a little bit from Amway co-founder Jay Van Andel's book, An Enterprising Life where Alex first read about Slava Rostropovich. In 1982, as Amway was preparing to enter the European market, they decided to sponsor Slava's month-long tour of the continent with the National Symphony Symphony Orchestra. And here's what Jay wrote about Slava and why they did it. Quote, Only in a free society can artistic talent like Slava's come to fruition and enrich the lives of each individual. A free enterprise economy can generate such that people can afford to buy the work of actors, artists, musicians. Talented people who cannot find enough buyers for their work will find, in a free economy, philanthropically-minded individuals to support their work. Socialism keeps everyone, except the political elites, at such a low standard of living that they cannot afford to support artists. By supporting the National Symphony Orchestra, Amway was acting in its role as an ambassador for free enterprise. We hope that everyone who sat in a European auditorium to hear the orchestra noted two things. First, Slava, an example of a man once oppressed by statism and now set free to use his abilities to the fullest. Second, funds made possible by the American free enterprise system working to promote those cultural events that make human existence more enjoyable. Mission accomplished. Amway has more than 250,000 distributors in Europe today, spinning this virtual cycle of free enterprise all over again. And when we come back, the final chapter in this story of the life of Slava Rostropovich, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to the final portion of our American Dreamers feature, a Mistislav Slava Rostropovich, Russian cellist and conductor who was banished from the Soviet Union for standing up for artistic freedom and freedom writ large. First, the freedom of his professors, then that of the Czech people, his own, and finally his dear friend, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. When we left off, Slava found freedom in the United States of America, an artistic freedom as the musical director and conductor of the National Symphony Orchestra. We probably could play the loudest of any orchestra and the softest of any orchestra. And this was what Slava demanded of us. He also demanded, everyone loosen up. He sometimes surprised his colleagues by pasting centerfolds from men's magazines into the pages of their scores. His mischievous sense of humor cut through the sobriety of the concert atmosphere. I think the most intimidating thing was in a rehearsal. And he would stop the entire orchestra and he would point to an individual player. Like to me, he's done this to me, I'm sure he did it to you. He would stop and he would say no good and he would show you on his arm second finger much better and you would think oh my gosh he's right and so you pick up your pencil and you write a second finger over that F because you had played it with a first finger and it didn't work and he had seen it and he had stopped the whole orchestra and this is so embarrassing and then he would back up four measures and we would play it again and he would stare at you to see if you used the fingering that he told you to use I've met probably 10,000 or 15,000 people who claim to be students of Slava. I mean, I I sometimes had the feeling that if they were in the same room with him, they became a a student. He was able to express what he needed to uh, with his body, body language, with his facial expressions. He wanted it to be devastating, devastating. Frenicky. When you come in in the first movement of Tchaikovsky 6, after quiet bass clarinet, six women in front row must die of heart attack. He was trying to get across, you know, and he just couldn't get it across. And finally he said to the upper string, he says, you must play this like you have fork in brain. That got the point, just the image of that, like, got the point across. And immediately was there. Like one time, he, he said he wanted the symbol to sound like every glass in Washington D.C. would break at the same time. Every water glass, you know. He 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 wouldn't. He was maybe over the top, but he got his point across. And ultimately, the the musical impact was there. newspaper the Washington Post wrote Rostropovich the man was as warm and generous as his artistry it was not unusual for him to leap from the conductor's podium after a particularly satisfying interpretation and hug and kiss every musician within reach he was shameless and an irrepressible flirt and a connoisseur of fine wine and drink 
A man who gulped vodka in much the same way, and with much the same enthusiasm, that a professional athlete might gulp Gatorade. And he was good copy for anyone who wanted to write about him, and so Time Magazine did, putting Rostropovitz on its cover, calling him the Magnificent Maestro. Slava lived more in one day than I live in 10 years. During his years of exile, Rostropovich often described himself as an ambassador of the Russian people. It's not the rotten government. And so when new Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev pursued democratic reforms, Slava was there to welcome him, joining President Ronald Reagan at a White House meeting in 1987. And then in 1989, this happened. I'm Peter Jennings in New York just a short while ago. Astonishing news from East Germany, where the East German authorities have said, in essence, that the Berlin Wall doesn't mean anything anymore. The wall that the East Germans put up in 1961 to keep its people in will now be breached by anybody one who wants to leave. Dancing everywhere, East and West joining in a celebration of a united future. As quickly as he could, Slava flew to Berlin, cello in hand, and played an impromptu concert at the scene. Slava chose one of Bach's solo suites, a work he said that at the age of 70 he had taken up for the first time because I now had balance at my disposal for the first time. why do you go so fast you are uh, you're not a young man anymore but uh, i want you to be healthy but but you still travel enormously and even more now i say that's right even more now because like a sportsman who runs a marathon in the end i have to run faster Only a few months later, Slava's citizenship was restored. And he wasted no time. The very next month, he took the National Symphony Orchestra to Moscow in Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. I think bringing an American orchestra, playing their music, Russia, Kofiev, Tchaikovsky, and Shostakovich, bringing their music over and playing it with his interpretation with an American orchestra, that's a big deal. Even the rehearsals in Moscow leading up to the concert were a big deal. For Slava, and especially for the Russian people. He had not been able to sleep, so he went out in the street, and he was walking down the street, and it's like 5 o'clock in the morning, and some old lady is out sweeping the sidewalk or shoveling the snow, because it was the middle of winter. And she stopped, and she said, Slava Rostropovich? And he said, yes. And she said, I thought you were dead. It's a miracle. And, and they all treated him like it was a miracle that we were there, that he was there, that he was alive, that he was still playing, he was still conducting. Even just the dress rehearsal, and they allowed an audience into the dress rehearsal. And in the back of the hall in the Moscow Conservatory, I mean, there's the nice seats up front, but in the back, it's just these benches, like I'm sitting on here, these hard benches. And maybe there's supposed to be five people in one bench, and there'd be like 12 people just jammed in there like sardines, and they had all paid their five rubles, and they were going to see this if it was the last thing. And you just looked at them, and you saw how desperate they were, and you realized he wasn't kidding. It really was like life and death to them. 
and, and they brought these flowers, bouquets of flowers, and they come up to the podium afterwards and they put these flowers. And it was like somebody died. There was this mountain of flowers on the podium after the concert. For his final encore, Slava chose this American classic, John Philip Sousa's Stars and Stripes Forever, the traditional finale of the National Symphony's annual 4th of July concert on the West Lawn of the Capitol. The Moscow audience, you can hear clapping and standing in ovation. Later, amidst bear hugs and vodka toasts at a post-concert reception, Slava was asked why he picked Stars and Stripes Forever. The idea, he said, came from the heart. Mistivlav, Slava, Rostropovich, forever a Russian, forever an American dreamer. And what a great piece. And Greg, as always, does such a great job, Alex, bringing it home. And what were a couple of things? I know when you're doing a piece like this, Alex, there's always something you you wanted to put in, you didn't put in. One or two things? Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, you could hear his friendship with Solzhenitsyn. And one of the, when he visited the Berlin Wall, he said, we should really build a statue here to this man. It just wasn't me. It was Solzhenitsyn. And then in 1993, during the siege of the Russian White House, which many people remember, they're achieving democratic reforms and those communist hardliners are fighting back. Slava happened to be in in Russia touring again with the National Symphony, and he planned to give a free concert in Red Square. And it was originally just planned as a gesture to music lovers who couldn't fit in those smaller indoor concerts. But because of what was going on, there was 100,000 people there at that concert. You see a classical music concert. And Slava said of it, Russians need to be reminded that at times like this, they are a great people. Events disrupt, disrupt things a, a little sometimes, but listening to this music is a reminder that there's a great nation here. Well, what a great story. And go to ouramericannetwork.org, grab this, share it with friends, by the way. You know, as we're hearing a lot about what folks think about America and the American flag, I always love asking immigrants what they think. Russians, Ethiopians, Nigerians... Uh, from all over the world, we heard Frank Capra, of course, on July 4th and what he thought, Italian immigrants. And you don't hear much, well, let's just say there's not a lot of protest theology around those folks. Because they've lived somewhere else. And they know what it's like to live under dictatorial powers. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. I don't know what to say. Slava. That's it. His life story. And... I just love that kind of storytelling. Thanks so much, guys, for all you do, and gals, because Faith has joined our team. More after these messages.
is Our American Stories, and it's time for our regular Final Thought segment, where we hear eulogies of amazing people from the folks they've touched. Or, in this case, hearing the thoughts of a man with a terminal cancer diagnosis. Professors are often asked to give a last lecture as an academic exercise, imagining what wisdom they'd impart if it were indeed their final chance. But for Carnegie Mellon computer science professor Randy Pausch, this was no exercise. He gave this lecture back in September 2007. But we'd stumbled upon it again and thought, my goodness, the YouTube video has 10 million views, which means in a country over 300 million plus, a whole lot of people may not have heard it. For those of you who have, my goodness, and I had, it just brought me back to that day. But for those of you who haven't, just be prepared to enjoy the next hour. This is Randy opening up his lecture by explaining his situation and his current health. It's wonderful to be here. Um, uh, what Indira didn't tell you is that this lecture series used to be called The Last Lecture. If you had one last lecture to give before you died, what would it be? I thought, damn, I finally nailed the venue and they renamed it. <laughs> so, um, you know, in case there's anybody who wandered in and doesn't know the backstory, my dad always taught me when there's an elephant in the room, introduce them. Uh, if you look at my CAT scans, there are approximately 10 tumors in my liver, and the doctors told me three to six months of good health left. Uh, that was a month ago, so you can do the math. Um, I have some of the best doctors in the world. Uh, so that is what it is. We can't change it, and we just have to decide how we're going to respond to that. We cannot change the cards we are dealt, just how we play the hand. Uh, if I don't seem as depressed or morose as I should be, um, sorry to disappoint you. Uh, uh, and I assure you, I am not in denial. It's not like I'm not aware of what's going on. My family, my three kids, my wife, we just decamped. We bought a lovely house in Chesapeake, Virginia, near Norfolk. And we're doing that because that's a better place for the family to be down the road. Uh, and the other thing is I am in phenomenally good health right now. I mean, it's the greatest thing of cognitive dissonance you will ever see is the fact that I am in really good shape. In fact, I'm in better shape than most of you. And with that, he dropped to the floor and did push-ups, even throwing in a few one-handed ones. Randy had a very specific message to tell the people listening to this lecture. So what is today's talk about then? It's about my childhood dreams and how I've achieved them. I've been very fortunate that way. How I believe I've been able to enable the dreams, I've been able to enable the dreams of others. And to some degree, lessons learned. I'm a professor, there should be some lessons learned and how you can use the stuff you hear today to achieve your dreams or enable the dreams of others. And as you get older, you may find that enabling the dreams of others thing is even more fun. So what were my childhood dreams? Well, you know, I had a really good childhood. I mean, no kidding around. Uh, I was going back through the family archives, and what was really amazing was I couldn't find any pictures of me as a kid where I wasn't smiling, right? And that was just a very gratifying thing. Um, uh, you know, there was our dog, right? Aw, thank you. Um, and, and there I actually have a picture of me dreaming. Uh, and I did a lot of that, you know? There's a lot of wake-ups, you know? Um, and uh, it was an easy time to dream. I was born in 1960, right? When you're eight or nine years old and you look at the TV set and men are landing on the moon, 
anything is possible. And that's something we should not lose sight of, is that the inspiration and the permission to dream is huge. So what were my childhood dreams? You may not agree with this list, but <laughs> I was there. Uh, <laughs> being in zero gravity, playing in the National Football League, uh, authoring an article in the World Book Encyclopedia. I guess you can tell the nerds early. Um, uh, being Captain Kirk. Uh, anybody here have that childhood dream? Not at CMU, no. Um, I wanted to become one of the guys who won the big stuffed animals in the amusement park, and I wanted to be an Imagineer with Disney. Not bad. It was in his pursuit of one of those dreams that Randy learned some of his most important lessons. My dream was to play in the National Football League. And most of you don't know that I actually play. No. Um, <laughs> no, I did not make it to the National Football League. But I probably got more from that dream and not accomplishing it than I got from any of the ones that I did accomplish. Um, I, I had a coach. I signed up when I was nine years old. I was the, the smallest kid in the league by far. And I had a coach, Jim Graham, who was six foot four. He had played linebacker at Penn State. He was just this hulk of a guy. And he was old school. Okay, I mean, really old school. Like, he thought the forward pass was a trick play. <laughs> so, and he showed up for practice the first day. And, you know, this big hulking guy, we were all scared to death of him. And he hadn't brought any footballs. How, how are we going to have practice without any football? And one of the other kids said, excuse me, coach, but there's no football. And Coach Graham said, right, how many men are on a football field at a time? So he said, 11 on a team, 22. And Coach Graham said, all right, and how many people are touching the football at any given time? Well, one of them. And he said, right, so we're going to work on what those other 21 guys are doing. <laughs> and that's a really good story because it's all about fundamentals. Fundamentals, fundamentals, fundamentals. You've got to get the fundamentals down because otherwise the fancy stuff isn't going to work. And the other Jim Graham story I have is there was one practice where he just rode me, all practice. Just, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, go back and do it again, you owe me, you're doing push-ups after practice. And when it was all over, one of the other assistant coaches came over and said, yeah, Coach Graham rode you pretty hard, didn't he? I said, yeah. He said, that's a good thing. He said, when you're screwing up, and nobody's saying anything to you anymore, that means they gave up. And that's a lesson that stuck with me my whole life, is that when you, see, when you see yourself doing something badly and nobody's bothering to tell you anymore, that's a very bad place to be. Your critics are your ones telling you they still love you and care. Yeah, I mean, what do you, what do you get the word disciple from? And discipline. And think about those two words. And that's love in the end. And Randy's going to have so much more to share as we continue this hour. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Randy Pausch's last lecture when we come back. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our final thought segment. And we're digging down deep 
and backwards back to a lecture by Randy Pausch in September of 2007. I think this is just something we should all hear at least once or twice a year, and we will do that here on Our American Stories. It's that good. And so Randy had just been making the point about that coach who was riding him all the time and how important it is to have critics in your life, people who are pushing you along, because that's their way and anyone's way of saying I love you. I mean, the hardest thing to do is to be a critic. Randy carried that last point well after his football days. When you do the right thing, good stuff has a way of happening. Uh... Get a feedback loop and listen to it. Your feedback loop can be this dorky spreadsheet thing I did, or it can just be one great man who tells you what you need to hear. The hard part is the listening to it. Anybody can get chewed out. Right? It's the rare person who says, oh my God, you're right, as opposed to, no, wait, the real reason is, right? we've all heard that. When people give you feedback, cherish it and use it. Randy went on to talk about the importance of mentors and the specific man who helped motivate him and he even pointed out some of his character flaws. Other people who, who help us besides our parents, our teachers, our mentors, our friends, our colleagues. Um, God, what is there to say about Andy Van Dam? Um, when I was a freshman at Brown, he was on leave. And all I heard about was this Andy Van Dam. He was like a mythical creature, like a centaur, but like a really pissed off centaur. <laughs> and everybody was like really sad that he was gone, but kind of more relaxed. And I found out why, because I started working for Andy. I was a teaching assistant for him as a sophomore, and I was quite an arrogant young man. And I came in to some office hours, and of course it was 9 o'clock at night, and Andy was there at office hours, which is your first clue as to what kind of professor he was. And I come bounding in, and you know, I'm just, I'm going to save the world. There are all these kids waiting for help, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And afterwards, Andy, literally Dutch uncle, he is Dutch, right? He Dutch uncled me, and he put his arm around my shoulders, and we went for a little walk, and he said, Randy... It's such a shame that people perceive you as so arrogant. (laughs) Because it's going to to limit what you're going to be able to accomplish in life. What a hell of a good way to word you're being a jerk. (laughs) He doesn't say you're a jerk. He says people are perceiving you this way. And he says the downside is it's going to limit what you're going to be able to accomplish. There are a few people that will actually tell us like it is, and Andy Van Dam was definitely one of those for Randy. He even helped teach young, arrogant Randy a little persistence. Never give up. I didn't get into Brown University. I was on the wait list. I called him up, and they eventually decided that it was getting really annoying to have me call every day, so they let me in. Um, <laughs> At Carnegie Mellon, I didn't get into graduate school. Andy had mentored me. He said, go to graduate school. You're going to go to Carnegie Mellon. All my good students go to Carnegie Mellon. And, uh, yeah, you know what's coming. Uh, and so he said, you're going to go to Carnegie Mellon, no problem. What he had kind of forgotten was that the difficulty of getting into the top THD program in the country had really gone up. And he also didn't know I was going to tank my GREs because <laughs> he believed in me, which, based on my board scores, was a really stupid idea. And uh, so I didn't get into Carnegie Mellon. No one knows this till today I'm telling the story. I was declined admission to Carnegie Mellon. And uh, I, I was a bit of an obnoxious little kid. I went into Andy's office, and I dropped the rejection letter on his desk. And I said, I just want you to know what your letter of recommendation goes for at Carnegie Mellon. <laughs> I 
<clears throat> and before the letter had hit his desk, his hand was on the phone, and he said, I will fix this. Remember brick walls, let us show our dedication. They are there to separate us from the people who don't really want to achieve their childhood dreams. Don't bail. The best of the gold is at the bottom of barrels of crap. And Randy really did want to get into grad school, so he mustered up all the humility he could, and he went to see the gatekeeper of Carnegie Mellon. So I'm in Nico Hopperman's office the next morning at 8 a.m., and he's talking with me. And frankly, I don't think he's that keen on this meeting. <laughs> I don't think he's that keen at all. And he says, um, Randy, uh, why are we here? And um, I said, because Andy phoned you? <laughs> and I said, well, since you admitted me, I have won a fellowship. The Office of Naval, Office of Naval Research is a very prestigious fellowship. I've won this fellowship, and that wasn't in my file when I applied. And Nico said, a fellowship, money, we have plenty of money. That was back then. <laughs> uh, and he said, we have plenty of money. Why do you think having a fellowship makes any difference to us? And he looked at me. There are moments that change your life. And 10 years later, if you know, in retrospect, it was one of those moments, you're blessed. But to know it at the moment, with Nico staring through your soul. <laughs> And I said, I didn't mean to imply anything about the money. It's just that it was an honor. There were only 15 given nationwide. And I did think it was an honor that would be something that would be meritorious. And I apologize if that was presumptuous. Randy got into grad school and achieved many of his childhood dreams. This all came to a screeching halt when he found out that he had pancreatic cancer. His response was what you might expect from an engineer. And he said, Randy, there's a mass on your pancreas. And, uh, and he said, and it's not fair. Don't think it's unfair. We all stand on the dartboard, and you know, a very small percentage of us are going to catch the dart labeled pancreatic cancer. And I was, uh, I was unlucky, but it wasn't unfair. Uh, pancreatic cancer is pretty much the most fatal cancer of all. It is ruthless. It is brutal. Very few people beat it. His terminal cancer diagnosis had not changed his approach to life or family. He says, quote, I am maintaining my clear-eyed sense of the inevitable. I'm living like I'm dying. But at the same time, I'm very much living like I'm still living. Here is Randy and his wife, Jay, finding joy in the normal. If there was anything I wanted to do that badly, you know, I should have already done it. The little moments of joy that we have around the house, you know, that's my bucket list. It's how many of those moments can we have? where we are together and we're holding hands or we're reading the paper and debating what's going on. And, and those are um, gems that I hold on to. Randy loved his wife and even said in an interview that his life couldn't be made into a movie because no Hollywood actress was pretty enough to play his wife. This is Jay taking Diane Sawyer to the moment when she first learned her husband would soon die. I was sitting on the floor when I took that phone call. And was it a slow, incremental kind of realization that it... No. I think by the time I got off the phone, Randy told me he was going to die. So there were many nights that we would go to bed, um, roll over and hug each other and cry. Um, and this went on for several days before we finally said, um, we have to be able to function. One. I felt like I had to get through the day without crying. 
I felt like I had to be able to look at him playing with the kids and not cry. What are we making, Logan? We're making a snow You hear that voice that comes in and says, it could be the last time they're playing in the snow together, and I just have to shut it off. Like Randy, Jay came to terms with a devastating diagnosis. For better, for worse, it is what it is, and I can't change the fact that Randy has cancer. I can't make those tumors go away, no matter how much I would want to. So it is what it is, and I have to live with that. And in order to do so, um, I accept. I accept the circumstances. I accept the conditions, conditions upon which we are living. I do. And I am at peace with that. Don't like it, but I accept it. Don't like it, but I accept it. And we come back. We're going to continue with the story of Randy Pausch, his wife, his family, and a story of how a husband, a father, and a family dealt with a terminal illness. This is our final thought segment. We love doing these segments. We're hearing back from you that you love them too. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and listen to them and get in touch with us. Post yours. You know, Randy Pausch wasn't a famous man. Ultimately, his sharing of his life and his struggle made him such. And so if you can, or if you're inclined, 844-627-8255. Leave your story. A eulogy of a loved one? Or if you know somebody who is in the process of dying or near death, or if you are yourself, Again, 844-627-8255. This is Our American Stories. More with Randy Pausch. And final thoughts after these messages. Continuing with the story of Randy Pausch, the story of how a husband, a father, and a family dealt and struggled with, and in the end, came to grips with a terminal illness. It would be easy for someone like Randy, with months to live, to wallow in self-pity, but his focus was not on himself. Here's how he thought about his kids growing up without a dad. Sadness that comes when I think about my kids... And it's not so much a, I won't get the experience of being a dad. I mean, that's sad. But the really strong emotions for me are, they won't have me for them. And uh, that's where it's okay for me to say, that's not fair. The metaphor I've used is, somebody's going to push my family off a cliff pretty soon. And I won't be there to catch them. And that breaks my heart. But... I have some time to sew some nets, 
to cushion the fall. And that seemed like the best and highest use of my time. So I can curl up in a ball and cry, or I can get to work on the nets. And even with this perspective that does not always dull the pain and the reality of terminal illness. You know, there are certainly times when you feel like, you know, okay, yeah, you've beaten me down to my knees. And now the challenge is I'm on my knees and you're just going to keep beating me. And the question is, you're going to beat me all the way to the ground or am I going to find a way to struggle back up to my feet? And, you know, it, it takes time sometimes. Um, you know, the, Even uh, for you? Absolutely for me. There are certainly times when I cry. You know, I like to cry in the shower. I think for the same reason that people sing in the shower is that you think nobody, you know, it's your own little private space. It's all so heartbreaking, but the tragedy, tragedy is not what Randy wants us to focus on. And so we return to that speech. And here is a dying man teaching all of us how to live. And we've talked about my dreams. We've talked about helping other people enable their dreams. Somewhere along the way, there's got to be some aspect of what lets you get to achieve your dreams. First one is the role of parents, mentors, and students. I was blessed to have been born to two incredible people. This is my mother on her 70th birthday. I am back here. I have just been lapped. <laughs> this is my dad riding a roller coaster on his 80th birthday. Um, and he points out that you know, he's not only brave, he's talented because he did win that big bear the same day. Uh, my dad was so full of life. Uh, anything with him was an adventure. I don't know what's in that bag, but I know it's cool. Uh, my dad dressed up as Santa Claus. But he also did very, very significant things to help lots of people. Uh, this is a dormitory in Thailand that my mom and dad underwrote. And every year, about uh, 30 students get to go to school who wouldn't have otherwise. This is something my wife and I have also been involved in heavily. And these are the kind of things that I think everybody ought to be doing, helping others. Uh, but the best story I have about my dad is, unfortunately, my dad passed away a little over a year ago. And when we were going through his things, he had fought in World War II in the Battle of the Bulge. And when we were going through his things, we found out he had been awarded the Bronze Star for Valor. My mom didn't know it. In 50 years of marriage, it had just never come up. Uh, my mom. Uh, mothers are people who love you even when you pull their hair. Um, and uh, I have two great mom stories. When I was here studying to get my PhD and I was taking something called the theory qualifier, um, which I can definitively say is the second worst thing in my life after chemotherapy. <laughs> <clears throat> and I was complaining to my mother about how hard this test was and how awful it was. And she just leaned over and she patted me on the arm and she said, we know how you feel, honey. And remember, when your father was your age, he was fighting the Germans. <laughs> After I got my PhD, my mother took great relish in introducing me as, this is my son. He's a doctor, but not the kind who helps people. <laughs> That's great. Randy concludes his speech by testifying to the importance of gratitude. Show gratitude. When I got tenure, I took all of my research team down to Disney World for a week. And one of the other professors at Virginia said, how can you do that? I said, these people just busted their ass and got me the best job in the world for life. How could I not do that? Right? Uh, don't complain, just work harder. 
Right? It's a picture of Jackie Robinson. It was in his contract not to complain even when the fans spit on him. Right? Uh, be good at something, it makes you valuable. Work hard. People, I got tenure a year early, as Steve mentioned. Junior faculty members used to say to me, wow, you got tenure early. What's your secret? I said, it's pretty simple. Call me any Friday night in my office at 10 o'clock, and I'll tell you. <laughs> Find the best in everybody. One of the things that John Snotty, as I said, told me is that uh, you might have to wait a long time, sometimes years, but people will show you their good side. Just Keep waiting, no matter how long it takes. No one is all evil. Everybody has a good side. Just keep waiting. It will come out. And be prepared. Luck is truly where preparation meets opportunity. So today's talk was about my childhood dreams, enabling the dreams of others, and some lessons learned. But did you figure out the head fake? It's not about how to achieve your dreams but how to lead your life. If you lead your life the right way, the karma will take care of itself. The dreams will come to you. Have you figured out the second head fake? <laughs> Talk's not for you. It's for my kids. And that's what it was all about, being there for Dylan, Logan, and Chloe, even though he couldn't be there. And Randy said, quote, Kids, more than anything else, need to know their parents love them. Their parents don't have to be alive for that to happen. I mean, there's so many things that, that you know, I want to say to my family. You know, for the kids, uh, it's important that you guys know uh, that I never gave up, and you guys need to know how much I love you. And... Uh, how much it saddens me to know that I won't be there. But you need to know that even though I'm not there with you in the moment, that doesn't mean I don't love you. And that doesn't mean that wherever I am, that I'm not looking and watching. And I suspect being incredibly proud. And Randy's daughter, Chloe, would not even be two years old before he passed away. And probably won't remember him. But he says, quote, I want her to grow up knowing that I was the first man ever to fall in love with her. Sadly, Randy Pausch died July 25th, 2008. He spent a few of his remaining hours speaking to Congress he held up a large photo of Jay and the kids. Pointing to his wife, he said, This is my widow. That's not a grammatical construction you get to use every day. Pancreatic cancer can be beat. But it will take more courage, and it'll take more funding. But Randy's influence has gone well beyond the lecture halls or the halls of Congress. His lecture has been viewed well over 18 million times. The book version of that lecture, well, it was a New York Times bestseller for 112 weeks, sold over 5 million copies in the U.S. alone, and has been translated into 48 different languages. We'd love to hear your final thought stories, and we want you to hear 
your final thought stories because we'll just package them and push them right back out. Give us a call at 844-627-8255. Record your two to seven minute story. Leave us your information. If you need us to help you record it, we'll do that too. 844-627-8255. This is Our American Stories. Randy Pausch, Final Thoughts. our American stories and we love the culture we love television we love movies we love music and art and sometimes we just like that silly stuff that's on TV the thing you put on for half an hour just to get a laugh the light stuff some of the reality TV is just terrific and we love it and there's nothing better if you just need a laugh or a break than to turn on Judge Judy we also love Shark Tank, and periodically we bring you our favorite episodes because, well, maybe you missed them. And you're busy, and we don't have lives, and we're here to serve. <laughs> and so we were judging, we were going through and cruising the Judge Judy repertoire. And That's baloney. <laughs> no, it doesn't it isn't. make sense. It does make sense. <laughs> and we came upon a, a case called the case of the bum magnet. And so let's take a dive into this week's Judge Judy. And now the next case. All parties in the matter of Hodges versus Butner. Step forward. 20-year-old Kathleen Hodges and her father, Thomas, are suing Kathleen's ex-boyfriend, 20-year-old Gary Butner, for a loan to get an apartment and for shattering her car window. Who's this? This is my father. All right, you can have a seat, sir. Thank you. Ms. Hodges, this is your former boyfriend. Yes. And according to your complaint, you made a loan to him so that he could get an apartment. Yes. Gave him $300. Yes. And sometime either after or before that, you claim that he caused damage to your car. Yes. During the course of an argument. And you want him to pay for the damage he caused your car and the money. Now, Mr. Butner says that while he acknowledges that you gave him $300, there was never any discussion of this being a loan, that you gave him the money because, I don't know, because he's so good looking. (laughs) (laughs) And that as far as the damage to the car is concerned, you caused that damage yourself during the course of an argument, and he's going to explain that to me. Right? Yeah. Excuse me? Yes, Your Honor. Yeah. Yeah. Excuse me? I love those little touches. Yeah. What? (laughs) Let's hear from, what's his name again? Butner? Butner's his name? (laughs) Let's hear from the boyfriend. Now, Mr. Butner, when did Miss Hodges give you the $300? At the beginning of February. And where were you living at the time? I stayed at her house for a couple weeks because I got kicked out of my my dad's house. Shh, shh. Just let me deal with him, please. Thank you, Miss Hodges. You got kicked out of where, sir? My, my father's house, so... Is there any reason why you were kicked out of the house, sir? Probably because I didn't have a job at the time, or I was... Ah! He was tired of supporting you. Yeah. And why didn't you have a job? Because I got laid off and I wasn't working at the time. For how long were you laid off? Six months. Six months? Yeah. 
try yes. Yes. What kind of work had you been doing? Construction. And how long were you doing construction work before you got laid off? Just a couple months before that, so like So you eight worked months. for a couple of months, and then you got laid off, and you were laid off for six months? Yeah. Yes. See yes, how easy that is, Mr. Butner. See what a fast learn you are? Mm -hmm. You could have gotten a job in, in that six-month period. Look how fast you learned. Mm -hmm. How to say, yeah, yes, yes, yeah. right? <laughs> this is why everybody loves Judge Judy. She's calling him out on his BS. And he's, he's well, he's a, she's about to probably turn the tables. I don't know the case yet, but she gets mad at the women who support these so-called bums too. But right now she's focused on, well... Appellant number one, the bum. And let's go back to the boyfriend to find out more about his unemployed lifestyle. Now, prior to the two months that you were working construction, Mr. Butner, what were you doing? Nothing. I was just laying around, being A lazy. A prize. <laughs> and your father got tired of looking yes. at you laying around, so mm -hmm. he threw you out. Yes. And where did you go, Mr. Butner? Her father offered for me to stay over there. You didn't just go over there and show up there. You must have called. Yes. So what did you tell her? I told her that I got kicked out of my house. And then you went to your father? No, my dad heard about what happened and he offered. And how long had he been your boyfriend before he moved in in February? Probably about five months. So all the time that you were with him, Miss Hodges, he wasn't working? Right. Wow. Well, you know what's about to happen, right? I mean, if you've seen Judge Judy, you know where this table is going to get turned and which way the cannon fire is going to go. Judge Judy now asks the girlfriend about herself. What do you do? I am a behavioral therapist for children with disabilities and a softball coach. And what kind of educational background do you have? Um, I'm getting my AA right now, heading for BA and master's. Graduated high school with honors, have been taking college classes since I was in ninth grade. What about Mr. Butner? Um, he's technically in the 10th grade. I know, I know. Why in the world would you invite him to live in your house, sir? I wouldn't let a dog starve, your honor. No? No, I don't leave dogs on the street. Mr. Hodges, come and stand up here. I'm going to say something to you, oh, sir. Boy. Oh, boy, here it comes. Let's find out what Judge Judy has to say to the girlfriend's dad. What I don't understand, Mr. Hodges, is I have children. And if I had a lovely-looking, intelligent daughter who was a professional person, off on the right track, who had hitched her wagon to a loser... I would have to be on some sort of psychedelic trip <laughs> before, before I would invite him to my house after his own father threw him out. I would have to say to myself, huh? I wouldn't let a dog live on the street. <laughs> I wouldn't let a dog live on the street either, Mr. Hodges. Him I would leave on the street. Well, technically he was on the street. He was living in my motorhome. Now you can sit down. I got it off my chest. Thank you. Judge Judy returns to the girlfriend and the money situation. Now, would you tell me how come it came about, please, that you gave him $300? Because he didn't have a job and he needed somewhere to live, so I figured I would be a nice girlfriend and loan him the $300 to help him pay his deposit and his first month's rent because there was no one else to help him with money. His mom wouldn't help him with money. His dad wouldn't help him with money. His sister wouldn't help him with money. No one but me would help him with money, so I gave it to him. Miss Hodges, did you ever go to the movies with Mr. Butner in the five months that you were with him? Yes. Who paid? Um, a couple times him, mostly me. Well, how could he pay? He had no job, unless he sells dope. <laughs> well, am I allowed to say that on TV? Yes. He sold dope? 
You see? They don't keep me here because I'm gorgeous and 5'10". <laughs> they keep me here because I have a nose. How do you think I knew that? Smart woman. Miss Hodges. Quiet! How do you think I knew that? Because you're a very smart woman. Right. Now let's go back to the case. Now let me hear this business about the car window. Go ahead. Okay, I was at Mr. Butner's house spending the night. I went to bed at about 1 a.m. and I said, hopefully you're coming to bed soon. I woke up at 6 in the morning. He was still up drinking and playing poker with his friends. I told him that was the last straw. His drinking and gambling was too much for me, and I left. I had left stuff at his house. Against the advice of my dad, don't ever deal with a drunk, I went to go get the things I left at his house. To keep me from leaving his house, Mr. Butner grabbed my window from the top and pulled it, and it shattered. I got out of the car, I looked at my car, and I said, you better give me this money right now. He said, oh, don't worry, I'll give you the money. You know, at this point, he's crying for me to take him back, all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. And it was how much to fix the car? $139. All right, Mr. Buckner, let me hear your what version was, of these events. I was leaning on the window, and then she took off, which caused the window to shatter. <laughs> Quiet. Which caused the window to shatter. What were you leaning on the window for? Because we were yelling at each other and arguing. Why were you yelling at her? Because she was taking off at 6 in the morning. She didn't want to stay there with you anymore. Wow. Well, we know it's going to happen, because we're all just laughing here. Judge Judy, though, shares some advice with the girlfriend before rendering her decision. All right. Listen to me, Miss Hodges. What you really should do is you really should get down on the ground, kiss the ground, and say, thank you, God, for getting me out of this relationship and letting me see the light before I did anything stupid, like Mm -hmm. creating a family with this loser, like getting arrested while you're in his apartment because they do a drug raid, Mm -hmm. anything like that. You know? I do every day. You know? You look like a very nice girl. You should not be a bum magnet. That's really very stupid. Really very dumb. I've learned my lesson. Uh, Well, I certainly hope so. I don't know if your father's learned his lesson, and he should have been smarter than you. But certainly, I hope you've learned your lesson. Judgment for the plaintiff in the amount of $439. That's all. Why is our excuse? may step out. And by the way, that's why we love Judge Judy. She just tells it like it is. She has a nose for the truth. When she said the drugs and the selling pot, we all knew it. We were laughing. Outrageous. Outrageous. And that's why she gets the ratings, folks. And by the way, you know, we talk about the social state, the welfare state, personal responsibility. I would bet, what do you think, Jesse? One in three, Greg, one in three, one in four of these cases involve somebody who's just doing nothing, at least? At least. Doing nothing. (laughs) Yes! Yes, bums. That's what they used to be called. I love Judge Judy because she uses the word. She's not afraid to say, don't be a bum magnet. Yeah, even if, even if she's on your side, it doesn't mean you're not going to get it from her. No way. Yeah. No way. And she'll rule on the law, but she's going to say, hey, you're the reason. You know, it's your fault, too. Yeah. Good stuff. And, you know, folks, if you have your favorite Judge Judy, let us know. Uh, give us a heads up. You know, we watch it as often as we can, but we have jobs, too. And it's on every day, twice a day. And it should be because it's the number one rated show in television during the day. And she is now the official highest paid person. In television. All of television. I will kill you. Oh, I shouldn't have said that? Oh, that was just between us? You can't dance fast enough for me. Do you understand? Oh, yes, I can. I have a wife, a mother-in-law, and a daughter. No, 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 no. No, no, (laughs) no. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Believe me. And we got to stop this now because we got to go to a break. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. As always, our Judge Judy segments brought to us by Greg Hengler. 
There is no excuse for that. Just do me a favor. Step yourself outside. You're a